So how's everyone doing tonight? Surviving? Okay, I've got a quick question. How many of you actually live in Gig Harbor-ish area? Okay, cool. So you may have noticed this last weekend it snowed. And uh, I live in Bremerton, and my wife and I came down here because my parents live in Gig Harbor. And I was shocked at how much snow those of you who live in Gig Harbor actually had. Like, it was ridiculous. Like, on the way here, we saw a whole bunch of plows plowing the roads, but clearly they did not ever reach Gig Harbor. It was quite exciting. I love driving in the snow, so it was a lot of fun. Anyway, um, that was my experience with Gig Harbor this last week. Like Michael said, my name is Dustin Pauly. My wife and I have the privilege of doing Thrive Kitsap up in Kitsap, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, we don't meet at PCF, that was on the screen earlier. We meet at PBF, which is kind of funny, um, but yes. Anyway, just some random things, things I thought about a few moments ago. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're gonna jump into things. God, I thank you so much just for this time together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, that we can gather together as young adults who want to see you made famous. I want to see you glorified here on the earth. Um, God, we look to you tonight. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. Um, help me to only say things that are useful and um, profitable for building up your body, God. And I pray that anything that is not of you would just be taken away. Um, Lord, we look to you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm going to reorganize a real quick bit. All right. So how many of you know, like, Highway 3 at all? Do you know Highway 3 a little bit? Like between Bremerton and like Paulsbo? Okay, so I'm gonna tell you a quick story and it takes place there right about Newberry Hill. So last year, July 10th to be exact, um, my wife Emily, my son Ben and I and I were on our way from our house in Bremerton up to Squim. And we were approaching the Newberry Hill um, off-ramp and on-ramp. And while we were doing that, I happened to notice that the car that was in front of me merged to the right really suddenly. And that was shocking to me because I'd actually been trying to pass him for a while. And so I thought, now is my chance. I'm going to pass him, and really fast. But before I did so, I looked in the rearview mirror. And as I looked in the rearview mirror, I realized why this car was merging to the right. Behind me was a state patrol officer, and they were coming really quickly, like really fast. And so I had a second moment where I thought, maybe I can speed up a little bit and get in front of that car and then pull over. But then I thought, no way, not enough time. So I quickly turned to the right and merged over, which is a good thing that I did because like I said, the car came flying by almost that exact moment. And as I continued to watch the car, it kind of was like doing this swervy thing and it was like forcing all the cars in front of me on the right-hand lane to get off the road and like onto the shoulder. In fact, it was doing a lot of the swerving stuff. And as I watched it, Towards the end of that turn, it did a giant swerve to the right, forced the last car over, and then the officer yanked on the steering wheel and turned super sharply to the left. And at that moment, a car that had been driving the wrong direction came turning around that blind corner. And the officer actually struck that car that was driving the wrong direction, and they both went flying off into the grass median. If I had chosen to keep going and I hadn't slowed down, if I had chosen to pass the car in front of me, I would have been going about 70 when I hit this car head on. Now the action of this trooper saved our lives, as well as the lives of everyone in the cars around us. This event happened in less than a quarter of a mile, so in less than 15 seconds. And I'm honestly amazed and thankful for how God provided and protected my family in this situation. Especially considering how long it took me and everyone else in the moment to respond. Everyone in the cars that had turned off to the right, they had seconds to respond. But this police officer, 
had been thinking for a while, getting the calls on the radio. There's a car that's been driving on the wrong side of the road. Not just since from Palsbo, but like from the other side of the Hood Canal Bridge. She knew what she was going into. She knew it, that she was putting her life into danger. The rest of us had no idea. Now this is an allegory for salvation, a perfect analogy. The fact that we responded by moving out of the way and let her pass and take the hit for us is a clear parable to how Jesus took the hit for us and took away our sin by his death. If we had not responded by moving, we would have been dead. Just like if we don't yield to Jesus and his kingdom, the same fate awaits us. Now, I don't mean to start us off on a really heavy, hard note, but I do want to point out the idea, the fact that like how we respond to Jesus matters. And we all have an invitation to respond to God. So as you look at our passage of scripture tonight, we're going to be looking at the responses of characters and the responses that they have to Jesus. Now, some of these responses are verbal, some of them are actions, and some are thoughts. But each response is a moment where we recognize the presence of God and requires us a response. Let's go ahead and read it. So tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And when they came, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes, or Pharisees, were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sons are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. This story is crazy. There is a literal healing that happens to a man who is paralyzed. But as we look at it tonight, I want to focus on a few specific things in it. I want to focus on the attitudes of the four groups to understand this passage better. There's the crowds, there's the paralytic, there's the friends, and there's the Pharisees and the scribes. But before we continue, let's just set the stage for this event. So, in verses 1 and 2 we see that when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And the many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So what do we learn from that? First off, we learned, one, that he's returning to Capernaum, meaning that he'd been gone. But where has he been gone? If we look up ahead at uh, verse 39 from the last chapter, it says this, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus has been traveling around the region of Galilee, which is like the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's preaching in synagogues and he's casting out demons. So he's preaching and he's healing people. How awesome is that? But what is he preaching? Well, if we look back a little bit further, verse uh, 15 of chapter 1, it says this. 
He, um, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He really had been continuing the message that John the Baptist had been preaching. Time had been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Something new is about to happen. And he challenges, challenges us in our response. Repent and believe in the gospel. Truly, the gospel is that simple. But that's also really hard, right? Repent to turn away and walk in a different direction. Believe in the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. God incarnate, God in flesh, has come to save us. This is radical. But now, he's been on this travel thing, and he's returned to his home base in Capernaum. Capernaum. Well, why has he done that? And also, just as a side note, he was born in Bethlehem, then like grew up in Nazareth after Egypt, and yet he chooses Capernaum to be his home base. I think that's really significant and important. Also, I think it's probably a region right on the Sea of Galilee that happens to have a lot of people. It's a place where people gather. But while he's been gone, his actions while traveling have clearly caused a stir among people, since as soon as he returns, it is reported that a large crowd gathers at his home. Now, how does that work, and where would they fit? How many of you have watched the movie The Chosen, or the TV show The Chosen? Okay, okay, a few of you. So can you help me figure out what did the house where this scene takes place, what did the house look like in Capernaum? What was it made out of? Clay. Clay, yeah, mud, clay, baked. Um, any other ideas? What did the doorway look like? Yeah. And how about the windows? Like, about how big were the windows in that? Like, about that big, right? So this is an artist's rendering. They're making some decisions in a movie. But I think we can make some... Oh, one other question. What did the roof look like? This is super important. Thatched? Um, it may have been thatched. It was definitely uh, flat, though. Um, I think, actually, it... Well, I mean, the story here says that... Um, let's look at it real quick. Or I say something crazy. Except they made an opening. In Luke's gospel, it says there may have been tiles on it as well. And so um, that's cool. So it's probably not that. It's probably a little bit sturdier because the roofs in these towns, the roofs on these houses in these towns, tended to be a place where you could actually live and do things. In fact, in the summers, frequently people would sleep up there. Um, so it's a flat-roofed house. And there's external stairs that would have existed to gain access to that flat roof so you could do work up there which means that the roof was a usable part of the structure. Now in the movie, they made the claim that the house belonged to Zebedee, meaning James and John's dad. Uh, we don't actually know who the house belonged to. All we know that Jesus has returned to his place and his home base of Capernaum and that he's preaching in the house. Well, let's get back to the story. So the first group we see in this vignette is the crowd who is gathered to see Jesus. Now the crowd is large enough that it fills the house and spills over into the streets. And the crowd is full of people who have heard about Jesus and who want to learn more. We also know that there are Pharisees or scribes in the crowd. But why have they come? Why have they gathered? Why have they filled the house? Why have they filled the house overflowing? People are gathering outside the door and outside the windows to hear what Jesus is saying. Well, maybe they have heard about this Jesus guy and how he heals. Maybe they have heard from their friends a bit about this kingdom that he's talking about. Maybe their friends were offended and called them. Um, offended, offended, excuse me, offended by how they called, how he called them to repent, and they want to see it for themselves. 
Maybe they are thinking that possibly this man could be the Messiah. Or perhaps some of them are just looking for a new leader to help them throw off the Roman oppressors. Now we don't know, what we do know, is that these people were eager to hear the teachings of Jesus, and as soon as they learned that he'd returned, their immediate response is to quickly gather to hear the words of Jesus. Now this is a lifestyle that is worthy to imitate. How often do we quickly move to hear the words of God, to hear the words of Jesus? I don't know about you, but I want to be someone who is so excited about spending time in God's presence that I quickly run to hear the words of Jesus. I quickly run to read the scriptures. I quickly run to hear what Jesus is saying, what God is communicating. See, the presence of God requires a response. Now let's look at the second group of people in the story, and that's the paralytic's friends. So verses 3 through 6. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now these men, these friends of the paralytic, they exemplify faith, dedication, and perseverance. They did not let the thickness of the crowds prevent, prevent them from bringing their friend to Jesus. Instead, they climbed on the roof. Remember how we talked about the fact that the roof was flat? And they dug a hole in it in order to lower their friend down to Jesus. These were true friends and great examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Think about what it would take to do such an act. First, they had to hear that Jesus was back in town. Then, they had to go out and find enough people to carry their friend. This shows true compassion for their friend. Then, when the crowd was too great, they took the situation into their own hands, and they went on the roof of some person's house they didn't know, and they dug a hole in it. Then they lowered their friend down and forced their friend into the presence of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we should literally do that to our friends today, force them into church. Uh, I feel like forcing people to do things is not exactly the best way to go about evangelism. But there's a beauty in this. There's an admiration that we can have for them. Their dedication and their perseverance is inspiring and admirable. It shows the extent of their love for their friend. And it's also a beautiful picture of the gospel. They bring their friend to Jesus, literally. And if there's, another, if there's anyone in the story to imitate, it's also these men. But I'm curious, though. What were their thoughts when Jesus spoke to their friend, saying that his sins were forgiven? One of the commentaries I was reading, uh, it said that forgiveness was actually the greater desire of the paralytic. Their claim was that in this story, Jesus gives each group of people what they desire, with the exclusion of the Pharisees. Yet Jesus' answer has to be momentarily discouraging to the friends, because they had brought him. They'd done all this work. They'd carried their friend to Jesus, and his response is not to heal him initially, but to say that your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty confused by that response. Like, Jesus, what are you doing? I thought you were the healer. I'd heard the stories of how you've been healing throughout the region. Why aren't you healing my friend? But the story continues. Thankfully, that is not the end. So let's go ahead and look at this next group of people in verses 6 through 7. Now, some of the scribes, or Pharisees, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, these Pharisees, these religious rulers, are very knowledgeable people. 
They know what it looks like to follow God. They know what it looks like to follow God's law, specifically. And they especially know what it looks like to deviate from the expectations set in the Old Testament. Just imagine what you would feel when you hear someone talking about Jesus wrongly today. I've heard in school quite a bit. Um, I went to Western Washington University. Fantastic school, so much fun. Um, also as a part of a campus ministry up there called CCF, Campus Christian Fellowship. Definitely encourage, if you ever, encourage you if you're ever looking to go to a school to get plugged in there, especially at that campus ministry. But I was in the religious studies department. And so people said a lot of wacky things about what and who Jesus was. Most of the time, like, people didn't even believe in him. In fact, there was only one Bible professor at the school. And I asked him one time, hey, Professor Stoops, like, do you believe in Jesus? And he's like, well, it depends on what day you ask me. And so people say many crazy things about Jesus. And not about you, but it, it kind of grates at you, right? And you're like, is this a conversation I'm going to engage in? Am I really going to fight this person and be like, what you're saying is, is totally wrong. This is who Jesus is. I know Jesus. And this is who he is. I have a relationship with God. So it grates at you when people say wrong things about God. But the thing about these Pharisees is that they had a wrong understanding of who God was. And a wrong understanding of him. Honestly, because of that, I think it's really easy to read myself into the place of the Pharisees. And I think of this type of skeptical criticism that they really portrayed. And honestly, they were just thinking. And I think of that and I see myself. This is the basic worldview of our culture today. People say things, we're like, hmm, mm, yeah, nah. But we don't actually say anything out loud. If we say something, it's frequently online, and so it's like more anonymous. So people don't know that you disagree. And that's kind of how he lives it, right? In like skeptical criticism, but without actually interacting in conflict. But the response of the Pharisee is offense and disbelief. And they say nothing. Jesus is not acting like the coming Messiah that they had in their minds. The interpretation of the Old Testament has led to an expectation on how the Messiah should act. A conquering king, one who throws off the remnant of oppressors. And more than that, his actions to them are blasphemous because he's, be, he's claiming to be able to forgive sins. Who, he, who is he to say that he has the authority of God to forgive sins? And there is a warning here for us too. Are there places in our understandings and expectations of who God is that might be wrong? Are we forgetting like the Pharisee that God desires mercy over sacrifice? Are we caring for the people in our communities that Jesus sought out and cared for? Or are we acting like the Pharisees who stay in our isolated communities, maybe our isolated Christian communities, and only interact with the disenfranchised or the forgotten in an ideological format? Now, I'm not saying that your churches and your communities are inherently like those of the Pharisees, but I'm saying that I see in myself in this story um, that I often act like the religious leaders of the day. I see the Pharisees and I see myself. So I feel sorry for the Pharisees. But Jesus' response is very informative. And it's really challenging, too. Let's read through verses 8 through, 10, 8 through 11. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? They hadn't said anything? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bag, your bed, and go home. Jesus knew what they were thinking. How crazy would that be to witness? To these religious, religious leaders, Jesus asks them why they doubt, and he questions their interpretations of Scripture. 
The Pharisees were hung up on how the sins of the paralytic could be forgiven outside of the sacrificial system, since only God can forgive sins. And that was how how they had interacted with God. But here, Jesus is showing his divinity and his humanity by proving that he is the one sent by God. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of Man. He heals the paralytic. And in doing so, he proves that he has authority over the physical and over spiritual ailments. He doesn't specifically say in this passage that he is the Messiah or the Son of God, but he claimed that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. And then he demonstrates that he is indeed the Son of Man by healing the paralytic. He does this by saying, I say to you, that's what he says in verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This demonstrates that the authority of God dwells in Jesus. This is bold, and this is our Savior. You see, the presence of God requires a response. And in this moment, it's healed the paralytic. Jesus doesn't really argue with the Pharisees. Instead, he proves his divinity by his actions. The Pharisees missed Jesus in this moment. The Pharisees missed God. Let's go ahead and look at verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this before. The response of the paralytic in this moment is immediate obedience. How many of you struggle with that? You hear God say something, you're like, Ooh, yeah, yeah. I see in your scripture that you're saying this, and like, as I'm praying, I hear you leading me this direction, but that's really hard. How do I give those things up? How do I walk away from that? You're telling me you want to... Um, I had a friend in college. Again, going back to the whole college analogy. Um, his name was Miguel, and Miguel is one of the most conviction-driven men I've ever met. In fact, I'll get to that. Um, so after the, in spring of my first year in school, we're in the same dorm, and there's two weeks left of school, and he comes to all of us, like the super friends, and he's like, hey guys, so... Uh, I'm quitting school, and I'm moving out. We're like, what? There's two weeks left. Why are you doing that? He's like, well, um, I kind of lied on my um, FAFSA forms, and I got a bunch of extra money, and I feel convicted by it. So I'm going to stop school right now. I'm going to move home, get a couple jobs, and pay it all off. And he just started giving away his stuff. He gave it away to everyone. In fact, I got a camera from him, a tripod, and my wallet that I even use today, made out of snakeskin. Anyway, uh, I got that from him as well. But he just gave things away because he was obedient to God. Immediate obedience. God convicted him, and he's like, okay, then I'm going to repent, walk in the opposite direction, and obey God. It was radical. All of us were like, dude, just wait two weeks and then do it in the summer. He's like, no, I'm quitting the quarter right now. I'm just like, I'm done with school. Um, And now this guy is a missionary in the Middle East. He's a crazy guy. He's so cool. But the paralytic here responds immediately. Immediate obedience, such a hard thing to do. Now, I'm not sure how he felt about being caught in the middle of the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Although, is it really an exchange since Jesus is just telling the Pharisees what they're thinking? Anyway, I'm not sure how he felt caught in the middle of that exchange, but I'm sure it was a surreal moment, surreal moment. Not only did he experience physical healing of his paralysis, but he was also told that his sins were forgiven. I have no idea which shocked him more, but the combination was sure to have been overwhelming. I have to imagine 
that his walk, once he passed out of the crowds, quickly moved into running and skipping and shouting. He was paralyzed, and now he can walk. Now, there's only one more group of people that responds to Jesus in this story. And that's the crowds. And the crowd has the most appropriate response. They showed up to hear the teachings of this man named Jesus. They saw the faith of the paralytic's friends. They saw Jesus call out the thoughts of the Pharisees. They heard and saw Jesus challenge the Pharisees and then back up his statements with authority and power. They saw the paralytic man stand up, gather his things, and walk out the door. And rightly, in their amazement, they glorify God. They speak up and share their amazement and their prayer. This is also an example that we need to follow. When we see the glory and the majesty of God break through here on earth, we also need to respond in adoration and amazement. Now, I know this whole time I've been a little bit like intense and solemn and all that stuff, but I think this moment is really a moment of joy. The crowds have seen what Jesus has done. The crowds have seen this person that's done more than they could ever have imagined, that is healing people, and that is telling them that their sins are forgiven. I think we really need to step into the story and like celebrate. God, look what you have done. Look at how cool you are. Look at how awesome you are. You heal people. And you forgive our sins. I think just like the crowds, we have an invitation in this moment. An invitation and a challenge. Will we be like the crowds who come running to hear the words of Jesus and stand in amazement and wonder at the miraculous things that Jesus has done? Will we be like the paralytic's friends who bring their friends to Jesus? When was the last time you talked to a friend, recognized their hurt, and was like, hey, let's pray, whether they're a Christian or not? Said, hey, let's pray about that thing. Or maybe you have a friend at work or someone in your family, and you know that if you ask them, they might come with you to church, or they might do a Bible study with you, or they might join with you as you do a Bible study with a Christian who has more experience than you, if you feel a little bit like, I don't know how to do a Bible study. There's a challenge here. How are we going to respond? How are we going to invite other people to Jesus? But also, are we going to be like the Pharisees and silently criticize and disbelieve the things that God has done? Or will we be like the paralytic who immediately obeys God at his invitation and at the command of Jesus, stands up and walks? Now, I'm not sure where you're all at today. And what kinds of things you have been going on this last week? I know that for me, my week has been pretty crazy. And um, I'm coming into the night just like, God, how do I like, keep going forward? There are so many things that need to be done. And there are so many things that I'm unsure about. And there are so many things that I need you to move in. God, I need you to move spiritually in my life. God, I need you to move um, physically in friends that I have. But God, I need you. And so as we close tonight, let's just take a moment. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to leave a moment open just kind of for each of you to pray. But let's invite God in, and let's ask him, how can we respond to you? Jesus, what would you invite me to do in this moment? How can I respond to you? God, what are you calling me to do? What areas of my life do I need to repent and go the other direction? What areas of your life have you been hiding from God? This last Monday at Thrive in Kitsap, uh, we had a pastor come and share, and one of the things that he said was he challenged everyone. Are you spending time in the Word? Will you just spend 15 minutes a day in the Word? And I'll be honest with you, sometimes in my own life, that's really hard. I'm like, I forget. 
Um, I have an 11 month old son, and sometimes I wake up with the greatest intention to like read and pray, but instead I fall asleep sitting by the heater, and then he wakes up and I'm like, shoot, I guess what I'm doing today is playing. And I miss those opportunities. But as we close, I'm going to pray that we would all take those opportunities to be with Jesus. We would take those opportunities to follow after him. And we would look around to see who we can invite to do the same. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for how you care for us. God, I thank you that your presence requires a response. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us to know what that response is. How we can rightly obey you and follow you, God. And Lord, in that, I pray that we would not think that our salvation and our um, relationship with you is dependent on our own working, God. We would recognize that we can only come to you by your grace, God. You are the one who has made the way for us. Jesus, you are the one who died on the cross and made a way for us. So God, we look to you. We cannot do it without you. We need you, Jesus. So Lord, as we take a few moments of silence, I ask that you would speak to each and every one of us. Help us to see those places where we are missing it, those places where you are inviting us into deeper fellowship with you and inviting us to invite others to you, God. Lord, help us to remember that it's not because of our own strength, it's because of what you have done. God, we love you, we love you, we worship you, teach us to obey you, to obey you rightly, God, and with joy, knowing that when we follow you and when we um, get into your presence, Lord, that is where joy comes from, that is where hope comes from, it comes from you, God. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.